Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Going well, thank you Ed. After uh, my, my brain went a bit broken last week, as it is wont to do, as happens to all of us. So it's been very much a week of trying to get myself back on track, the old, uh, the old self-care. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's 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 funny when you look after yourself, things are better and easier, and and you're in a good place. <laughs> um, mm. So I went on a big walk yesterday. The weather was nice, and I listened to a big chunk of Adam Buxton's Ramble book, the audio book, mm. uh, which he recorded under lockdown, and it is everything that you'd hope and expect from Adam Buxton. It is warm and lovely and funny and open and vulnerable and curious and funny did i mention funny it's really funny <laughs> um so that that's been a delight how are you ed uh yeah i'm good i in terms of the connection between being in lockdown and mental health i often find myself thinking very much about that tweet that someone posted months ago at this point but it seems to get more and more relevant by the day which was something like time in quarantine consists of three days of feeling fine and then a sudden unexpected dip into what we call the hell zone oh my god and so uh <laughs> had a, f- a couple of hell zone days this week not where i'm necessarily feeling like you know i'm very aware i'm in a, in a way better position than a lot of people are to to weather the quarantine and i'm very thankful for that but there are just some days where everything just feels very very gloomy yeah uh i had a couple of days uh, this week like that which you know get past past them now you know feeling feeling better but yeah it, they, it, it wears on you <laughs> Even oh, when... it do. and it's it's cumulative you know mm, we've, we've yeah. been going through this in some way shape or form for a huge chunk of the year with no frame of reference and it's only really been in the past week from uh, from the middle of uh, the week that's just gone here in Scotland, uh, we've just about behaved well enough to be allowed to go to the pub again. And mm. what I've really enjoyed is just seeing all of the open spaces around me, like all the pubs that are mm. sort of finding ways to serve as many people outside. You're still allowed to go inside now, but you, you know you have to book and there's all the kind of contact tracing and things. I still don't feel okay about going inside yet, but just even just walking through my neighbourhood and it feeling like the neighbourhood again, like the hustle and bustle and that it looks like summer, I think has done me the world of good. And I'm the same as you, Ed. Like, I am incredibly fortunate in terms of my health, my wealth, other things. Um, And I've never experienced my privilege as vividly than Mm. during this time. I like to think I've been aware of it, but I've never had such a confrontation of like oh no you you are but the the like it's not easy (laughs) the Mm -hmm. baseline of a pandemic is hard and we don't have to compare and uh, there's a really beautiful episode well they all are of Brene Brown's podcast unlocking us talking about I think it's comparative suffering and how that actually just doesn't really make 
it's not useful it doesn't really make any sense when you sort of dig into it i mean the way that we can make things better is just overthrow mm. the billionaires <laughs> like i did particularly enjoy a meme that that showed uh, a picture of a guillotine um saying this let's test uh, if the billionaires are made of cake because apparently everything's made of cake <laughs> that was a revelation over the past couple of weeks everything is cake is that tilda swinton preparing for a role it's a cake <laughs> so yeah apart from trying to sort of like cut into bits of furniture and things but yeah the hell the hell zone was was very much where i was at over the past <laughs> week and i think i've been doing yeah like i'd say it's almost been sort of nine days on reasonably okay three days off but this one sort of floored me because it was basically a week um mm. But hey, love love to everyone in the hell zone. We've we've all got company. We're all yeah. there. Somewhere we're all passing through. That you don't need a booking. You don't need to <laughs> just come on in. There's always more space. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, you know, things have been chugging along fairly well. Uh I buckled to a going on twenty year uh promise not to ever watch anything Dragon Ball related. <laughs> <laughs> which was largely spurred by an argument I got into with a younger cousin of mine because he was he was really into Dragon Ball Z in the kind of like early 2000s and I tried watching one episode and I said this was terrible and I said let's watch some good anime and I showed him Princess Mononoke and he didn't like it and so like there was a just a, a real schism <laughs> in the family um, uh, and I was on the right side of but basically he's like well I'm never going to watch that I'm never going to watch that Dragon Ball nonsense uh, but through no fault of my own mainly through just the career I have <laughs> pursued um <laughs> Uh, I have wound up in uh, social circles where a lot of people watch a lot of anime and like will reference Dragon Ball and things like that. And I know occasional things, like I know like names of characters like Goku and Vegeta and things like that, but I don't know who any of those things are. And faced with, you know, an uncertain amount of time <laughs> of being trapped in my own house and having to try and find things to occupy myself, a kind of like 100 plus episode anime about a young child with a monkey tail then becomes a grown man who I think dies a lot but these, these are the only things I really know about Dragon Ball um, I started watching the original Dragon Ball this week and uh, yeah it's it's way kind of like goofier uh, than I was expecting I already expected it to be pretty goofy mm. but I wasn't expecting it to be so goofy as to like basically defy explanation for what's going on at any one point but I, I have been quite enjoying it, and it's, I, I do think it's, you know, I am generally quite an open-minded person when it comes to culture, and I do enjoy, like, seeing something that is, like, a huge cultural phenomenon that you're only kind of, like, vaguely aware of and kind of investigating it for the first time in any detail. And, yeah, so it's, it's interesting watching this, at this point, 34-year-old anime that has you know kind of gone on to be a worldwide phenomenon and where you have like a, a goku float in the macy days parade and things like that from the beginning and just try and think what was it that really kind of like chimed with audiences about this mm-hmm. so I, I have i have been enjoying that while also every so often just be thinking but 
why why is anything happening? Why is it taking them so long to realise that that old man has a dragon ball around his neck, considering they're looking for it, and that's clearly what it is. <laughs> like, I, I legitimately got very stressed out watching an episode where it takes them the entire length to realise that he has the thing they're looking for. <laughs> I was just kind of like, come on, man. Like, have it hidden or something. Don't have it as a necklace. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's that's been a bunch of this week. And also, I also watched... The, the the good bad hit of the year uh, Money Plane which uh, has been getting a lot of press mainly because of the crazy trailers that have been go- doing the rounds for it and <laughs> people sharing clips of it particularly of uh, the performance of the movie's gang lord villain played of course by Kelsey Grammer and uh, I, I can't say it's an absolute joy <laughs> it's one of the most <laughs> fun things I've seen uh, all year for, for people who don't know what Money Plane is it's a very low budget action movie starring WWE's The Edge as a man who's hired to do an art heist by uh, Kelsey Grammer the heist goes sideways so Kelsey Grammer says you know oh, I've bought your debt from the guy that you owe money to so you belong to me I want you to rob this uh, casino which operates on a plane and is kind of operated by you know, these these kind of, like, rich, you know, scumbags who are all there betting on horrible things like, you know, Russian roulette games and whether or not uh, how much it will uh, someone will take to chop off their best friend's hand and things like that. And it is very shoddy in the best possible way. Like, like the performances are, are pretty campy. I think uh, Kelsey Grammer is clearly having a ball playing you know, this kind of, like, outrageous villain who uh, is called Darius Emmanuel Grouch the Third, <laughs> a.k.a. The Rumble. Um, a.k.a. The what? <laughs> and it truly is... It's, it's wonderful hearing those words come out of Kelsey Grammer's mouth with that kind of lovely, luxurious voice that he has. And... Uh, so yeah, so he hires uh, uh, the Edge and his team to rob this plane. The plane is very cheap, uh, cheaply rendered. Uh, it just, I mean, I mean, like I read a oral history of the film, which featured a lot of the people involved. And it, it is apparently shot on a real plane that they like, you know, rented and kitted out. But it's so, it's so cheap and looks uh, to quote the uh, the art one of the articles that the ringer ran on it. You know, it does look like a Ramada Inn. It does look. It does not look like a plane that would be frequented by the world's richest criminals in order to bet on their kind of like horrible games of chance but uh, that all kind of adds to the charm of it because it is so it's reaching so hard and, and failing so badly in terms of the aesthetic in terms of the performances there are some sequences in it that are genuinely very funny there's a sequence in which one of the characters gets put into a game of Russian roulette with uh, a Texan played by the brother of the director, one of the brothers of the directors. It also is directed by the one of the Lawrence brothers who were stars of, of sitcoms in America in the, in the 2000s, including one called Brotherly Love, which I remember watching uh, a fair bit of on the Disney Channel back in the day. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and they're, they're all in it in small roles. But uh, yeah, there's this guy who's a, a Texan who is like a, doing a ridiculous accent, and then the whole scene basically consists of them arguing over who gets to fire the gun first, and it's just like this totally like manic farcical scene of them just sliding the gun back and forth on this 
table and it's it's ridiculous it's genuinely very funny but it's, it has that thing where it's quite a funny idea but it's also delivered in a way that's kind of haphazard and all over the shop there's so much to like about it in terms of bad movies just like the the aesthetic of it is is so chintzy the action is very poorly shot the performances are all over the place and the plot doesn't really make any sense there's just it is like such a perfect movie to watch with with friends and just kind of get slightly buzzed and just kind of like laugh at it you know it's a it's a real great mystery science theater style movie but it's made now instead of you know in the (laughs) 50s or whatever i cannot wait to see it partly because of uh, the ringer article in uh, that you that you mentioned ed uh, nine mm-hmm. pressing questions <laughs> about money play from miles surrey who i think is a comic genius purely for listing one of the questions as is this movie fraser canon yes niles was just <laughs> off screen looking for a sauvignon blanc um i also really like that it's wrestling the edge not yeah. you to the edge <laughs> Yes, very important. Be a very different movie. If, if Which was... I would also watch the fuck out of it. Let's not forget. Uh, but yeah, so I, I watched that. That was a, a real cultural highlight. Yeah, and I've also been catching up on some 2020 movies, but we'll be talking about those uh, soon enough. What about you? What's your, your cultural uh, intake been like over the last week or so? Well, I have had a real hankering for a lot of sort of comfort watching, but have also managed mm. to... Um, watch some really amazing stuff, um, which I'll talk a little bit more about when we get to the main topic of our episode. But I ended up watching with my flatmate. We wanted something kind of dumb and fun. And I was mm. like, well, have you seen Twins? He said <laughs> no. And then we watched Twins, which is a real kind of relic of the this like it reminds me of the um the description of the star wars holiday special right i can't remember who said it but like it's a sentient it was written by a sentient (laughs) bag of cocaine (laughs) and i think twins is arguably also um from that that's that same (laughs) that same bag of cocaine but the thing that struck me about watching it is not only kind of how ludicrous it is, kind of pantomime like full melodrama, um, but also it struck me the beautiful Kelly Preston is in it, and she's mm. very young. And you can see, even though she is kind of relegated to this girlfriend role, she really is just kind of that, like, peaks of 80s kind of (laughs) kind of beauty um Mm. and she's allowed lust because (laughs) she eyes up arnie several times so that it became an an unintentional tribute to her she passed away at the far too young age of 57 this week Mm. yeah i I really liked the tribute that arnold paid to her on twitter where he talked about what pleasure she was to work with uh, both as a co-star but also he directed her in a made for tv movie Oh, no way. Uh, yeah, called, I think it was called Christmas in Connecticut or something. I looked it up afterwards because I was just like, I had no idea that <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger could ever directed anything. And apparently he directed a made-for-TV movie and an episode of Tales from the Crypt. And I just have to assume that those sets were just gripped with terror because <laughs> as even, you know, kind of like, as, as by most accounts, you know, kind of seems to be like uh, someone who's kind of easy to get along with in a professional he's also giant and i can't imagine like if you were like 
preparing for a take, having kind of like lumber over to you and kind of like talk about your motivation, that you wouldn't be a little bit terrified that he was going to rip your head off. <sighs> uh, but yeah, I think that takes us to our, our new segment this week. And uh, this was kind of a couple of weeks ago at, at this point, but I think we both wanted to talk about them because they were so, so great. Uh, there were a couple of uh, profiles by E. Alex Young that kind of took the internet by by storm. Uh, one of uh, Michaela Cole, who obviously is really in the news a lot right now because of uh, I May Destroy You, which uh, is you know kind of like already shooting to the tops of many people's best of the year list. Uh, and it's been nice to see her having, you know, obviously she, she made quite an impact with chewing gum a few years ago and then... You know, it's taken a few years for her to kind of like come back with something that made as much of a dent in the consciousness for her to kind of come back with something so incendiary and impactful and also with uh, Tandy Newton uh, and I think that one made a lot more headlines just because of the, the stories that she told about you know, executives who said that they didn't think she could be one of the angels in Charlie's Angels because she uh didn't act kind of stereotypically black enough and things like that and both of those profiles i thought were uh, fantastic particularly about i particularly you know was drawn to the, the tanti newton one because she has been in hollywood now for such a long time and has so many of these stories that clearly she has been wanting to tell but you know maybe for fear of what would, would happen to her career maybe not being willing to tell them so having them or not all but having so many of them come out in one interview was like really quite an astonishing thing to see it was so tantalizing and i was just like tandy like her black book like please don't wait i i want to thank you for it when you release it i don't want you to have died (laughs) i really hope that that Mm. you know we make enough change that she's able to fully fully come forward i think she's such a remarkable human being and everything she's been through and her tone was great and that both Michaela Cole and Tandy Newton said to E. Alex Young like how much they appreciated the attention and the detail and the care that he gave mm. them. Um, just like and it just this kind of one-two punch of like these are these incredible women of colour who have have been delighting audiences and audience of audiences have been delighting in them and their work, but everything they've had to go through to get there <laughs> I don't think anyone mm. anyone wants anyone to have gone through anything horrific like and I think they are both adding so much important truth to the dimensions of abuse and trauma mm. yeah I don't want to go I, I, too much further into it than that but um, yeah. yeah and they're just they're both hilarious and really dry like the way that Tandy Newton just tells these stories like Tom Cruise and a zit on his nose. <laughs> like, <laughs> she, they just tell it completely, completely straight. And I think, mm. you know, they're they're not. It's more out of kind of like confusion and stunning, just being stunned in terms of how absurd everything is, rather than any sort of like specific personal agenda. <laughs> like, yeah, I think also, it was really fascinating in the Michaela Cole interview, her talking about why. I May Destroy You ended up going with is it HBO and the BBC? It who, is, yes. Rather than Netflix. Who, yeah. Uh, she talked to her at one point about it and then how, you know, her agent, or the, uh, presumably her agent in America was trying to push her to 
signed a deal with them and she was asking them questions about you know okay what do i get out of this do i get to own the ip for it and they they were offering her very little in kind of terms of reassurance of that sort of thing and and very much being of the oh this is the way things that happen it's fine sort of situation and her then saying like well so i said no and then i fired my agent (laughs) because i realized that they were they did not have my best interests at heart which i think is uh is great and generally very kind of like inspirational but also indicative of how there are a lot of kind of insidious layers to the industry in terms of how they yeah and this is nothing revelatory but you know like so many people talk about it being a industry full of sharks and people trying to get one over on people even when they're trying to help them like it's always good i think to be able to point to like a very specific example and say like if they're doing this to someone who has had you know a very successful tv show that's done really well through airing on netflix certainly in the u.s and who um, I'm pretty sure she must have been nominated for a BAFTA or two at this point. Yeah. It seems seems like she would have been. Then, you know, how many more people who don't have that kind of success or profile uh, are being exploited in that way? So it's a very, very telling moment from that interview about how the industry is kind of like set up to exploit, particularly kind of like young creators and, and people of colour who kind of like are don't necessarily have that kind of institutional protection that you get from a lot of people who've you know of older whiter more male people in the industry idols the two of them oh mm. in other news this week the uh the peacock app the uh nbc universal app launched this week their new streaming service which is most mostly three there is like a premium tier that you can pay for to get access to their originals uh, but for the most part, you know, it's it's free and you can watch a load of older stuff on there. And what was kind of interesting about this, other than the fact that the app generally seems to be pretty good, which hasn't been the case for some recent uh, streaming service launches, uh, <laughs> certainly I enjoy every article about what Disaster Quibi is. Oh, my God, um, And that's the only reason why I wanted to stay around, just to see how much, how much worse it can get, how much more money they can just set on fire joker-like well speaking of fire it's the fire festival of of streaming services it's utterly amazing (laughs) yeah so that's an early recommendation (laughs) just (laughs) google google quibi and just go to like news and just see how much more bad news is coming (laughs) for that company because that seems to be all they're attracting you know so the, the the launch of the app seems to have been generally reasonably successful and people seem to like it but the thing about it that was quite interesting for me was that there was a 30 Rock reunion done as a as a way of kind of commemorating the, the app, you know, that aired on NBC. It was pretty much just about saying, hey, we have this new streaming service. And a lot of what was quite interesting about that, other than, you know, just how <laughs> like brazenly cynical it is, was that a lot of affiliates in the US for NBC refused to show it because they, I would say, fairly correctly said saw that this was just a way of trying to get people to use the streaming app as opposed to just watching NBC on their televisions and therefore you know endangering the livelihoods of all of these affiliate stations that you know are part of the NBC network but are essentially their own little independent bodies and you know that there's always been uh, this very strong but also slightly tense relationship between like affiliates and the national network most Notably, I think in recent years you see that in like the whole thing with Conan O'Brien getting the Tonight Show and then 
Jay Leno being given a show before him which created the ratings for local news and then leading to Jay Leno being put back in charge of the Tonight Show which was all this kind of like really interesting examination of the the, the power that the affiliates have over um, in relation to the national network so the fact that NBC just were like yeah we're just going to do it anyway maybe points to um, a shift in that relationship or at the very least that they're not as kind of worried about angering the affiliates on this particular issue as, as they have been in the past mm. before we get into the, the main topic uh, obviously earlier this year uh, Lynn Shelton the, the, the filmmaker passed away uh, a tragically young age and everyone rightfully is very very upset about that still because she was such a wonderful creator who made such wonderful movies but uh, this week it was announced that the Seattle Northwest Film Forum and the Duplass brothers who I believe were, were fairly close to her and had worked with her in a number of capacities over the years are launching a $25,000 grant uh, in her name called Of a Certain Age and it's going to go to women and non-binary filmmakers in order to kind of help them get their movies made. I think also, as the name would imply, I think looking at people who are maybe a few, a little bit older, much as, as Shelton herself was when she kind of got into filmmaking. And, uh, you know, obviously it's scant comfort from the fact that Lynn Shelton's not around anymore we're not going to get any more movies for her but it's I, I, I saw that I thought that's, that's a really lovely thing to do for to kind of carry on her legacy and to try and encourage more filmmakers to kind of like try, tread the path that she did but with you know a, a slightly smaller step up I was just about to say that Ed fitting legacy because she was incredible in terms of how she supported her friends and her community and I really think it's there's something really lovely about her being I mean quote unquote a regional filmmaker like Seattle's her mm-hmm. home and Seattle is not renowned for being <laughs> kind of hot spot of filmmaking activity and that she sort of would go to LA to work and then come come back home <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um, down to earth gets thrown a- around a lot but she she seemed to be and she loved her work and loved the people that she worked with and this in some small way well it's it's a good it's a good thing to be in her name and mm. I, I am still too sad about Lynn Shelton to even be cynical about it and that says something <laughs> <laughs> and finally before we go on to our uh, main topic uh, there was the sad news this week that Naya Rivera passed away uh, Naya Rivera of course was one of the stars of, of Glee and her yeah, I only watched Glee for the first half a season, I think, up until <laughs> the the episode that that Joss Whedon uh, directed. But uh, she was always kind of a great presence, and I always I liked you know even when I didn't watch the show, following the way in which that show very kind of like pointedly explored her character's journey and through her own kind of like sexual identity and coming to terms with her queerness over the course of that show. I thought, and, and I've certainly seen a lot of people say um since the news that her death was confirmed uh talk about how much they saw themselves in that character and how that character really helped them come to terms with their own kind of like sexuality at a young age and yeah so it's just uh incredibly sad it's really really awful and i think i watched a fair bit more glee than you you did ed i can't remember exactly at what point Mm -hmm. i dropped off from it but it became a real Binding um, house watch in my second year of uni, mm-hmm. and I think it sort of ran out at the end. But initially, 
before you know the whole you're all minorities you're in the glee club no before (laughs) damn will schuster ruining everything was was great and it was this you know mildly revisionist sort of like high school effort from ryan murphy she was incredible um and i saw on twitter going around um not just in terms of like santana's um sexuality but just how fucking talented she was in uh, in the in the duet of ain't no mountain high enough i think like mm. just belting it out and the sort of weirdness of of glee in that that's a huge breakout thing to have when you're that young mm. and then no one was really sort of sure what to do with a lot of them yeah <laughs> so to not see the majority of them because you'd think hey you can sing you can dance you can act triple threats and the unfortunate nature of another cast member has definitely sort of put a darker cloud over it and um in terms of i think i think just how the internet mobilized for her because i think the the internet now is like particularly certain areas of twitter that i'm on the similar demographic of like people who grew up with that and the fact that she was so young and how long it took to find her and that kind of collected Mm. concern was quite powerful and yeah just and i think it's just a really horrible accident and yeah just lost for words ed so we'll go on to our main topic this week and as i'm sure everyone uh, knows we're about about six months into the year although um how long the year feels to you is entirely subjective <laughs> but going on the calendar we're at least six months into the year and that seems like a good time for us to take stock of of the year so far in terms of the films and TV shows and whatever that uh, we really liked. So we're taking this opportunity to talk about our, mainly about our top movies of the year, but also about the TV shows that we, uh, that have really kind of like, uh, we've really responded to this year and then other pieces of culture that, you know, here and there that we've, we've, we've watched. I'll kick us off by saying that one of the, one of the, uh, I guess TV show I, I show I guess episodic it didn't air on, on television it aired on YouTube that I've really been enjoying and that was kind of a discovery from this year was the work of a uh, YouTuber called Summoning Salt who is someone who makes very short documentaries about the history of speedrunning in the video game community um, for people who don't know uh, speedrunning is it's what it sounds like it's it's trying to complete a game as quickly as possible either by playing it as the game is intended or by finding fun ways to completely screw with it and kind of skip large parts of the levels and his documentaries they're yeah they range in length from sort of 20 to 40 minutes long or so and they're really fascinating in terms of chronicling the, the methods that people use in order to try and skip levels like um, one of the ones he's done Sonic Adventure 2 he talks a lot about how that game which was so profoundly broken in some ways had these really weird moments where you could literally just kind of like pass through the level and if you steered Sonic in the right direction you could just like fall right to the very end and skip several you know up to a minute of the game or whatever and how people kept finding these different ways to break the game in order to to um, beat it and the rivalries that develop between all these people it's really quite fascinating in terms of just like the way in which something as simple as watching people play a video game through his editing choices through the music choices he makes in particular you know he's he's 
got this great selection of really kind of like ambient electronica sounds that are used to create the, these kind of like rushes of emotion when people you know succeed and when someone discovers a new trick or whatever how they be- can become just like really really engrossing in the way that I think a lot of really good uh, documentaries can so I have really been that's that's I think been my one of my favorite discoveries of this year is, is his work which you can find on on YouTube by searching for summoning salt and yeah there's a there's a lot of good stuff in there I think the Sonic Adventure 2 one is a really fun it's a fun one to start with just because you get to enjoy the sight of just how badly broken that game actually was mm. uh, what about you Emily what's your what's your first choice oh oh <laughs> I have to say it when um when I knew that this was the subject um, that we were doing, I found it so hard to even remember what I've mm-hmm. seen from this year. Um, yeah. And I think the last time I was in a cinema was to see Parasite. Mm. And that yeah. now just feels like years and years ago. So I don't even <laughs> feel like it's really appropriate to to include it. But I don't know if you've heard about this uh sleeper hit parasite guys but it's, <laughs> it's the sound of the summer check it out um <laughs> so really like so much of what i've i've got because that's really what i've been doing in in terms of not managing to focus an awful lot on much but you know watching telly and films mm-hmm. and a lot of netflix because what i have been trying to do this year is uh boycott Amazon as much as I can mm-hmm. and you know what For it, I don't think I've bought or streamed anything from that cursed site in a couple of months now and I do think and again I am in a position where I do not have to engage with it so I so I can mm-hmm. I, I appreciate for a lot of people it really is literally the only option um, so I don't want to say like anyone who uses Amazon is that's not it at all but I I don't have to use it, so I can, I will not. Because <laughs> I don't want to contribute anymore to Jeff Bezos's insane and completely unethical personal world. Um, mm-hmm. So really, it's been a lot of like uh, Netflix, because of course they're totally great and there's no ethical problems with them at all. Pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. But, but also trying to explore, like, get involved with other film streaming sites. Like, so, so just kind of the benefit of finding more instead of just leaning on Amazon. Because Amazon will likely have things, and if you have a Prime membership, and, you know, that sort of makes sense. But other places like the BFI player has so much... Apple TV as well, um, and again Apple, but it's still not, still not the actual devil incarnate on earth, is it? Maybe one of the minions, but still, trying to make myself feel better. I streamed, rented for ninety nine p, the assistant mm. by Kitty Green, and I think she wrote, produced, edited, and directed it my god it's one of the most incredible films i've ever seen and of course it is completely up my street edge because it is about kind of the wake of in the wake of sort of weinstein and but even before it got to the kind of clear sort of warning signs of sexual abuse that was just sort of entirely being permitted i just felt immediately like the the monotony the 
um, pressure of these kind of entry-level film jobs, it brought mm. me right back. <laughs> it took me... <laughs> it took me back at 10 years ago and I was I was very fortunate in my experience um, in in some ways because it could have been a lot worse but in many ways it still wasn't great and I think it just it replicates that so perfectly and it shows how when you are in an institution headed by a psychopath it breeds psychopathy um, because everyone thinks you know that's the culture and it's acceptable the way that power absolutely preys on ambition that has no leverage whatsoever and it's basically shot like a horror film because it is mm. it's a it's a monster movie but it's a movie where we all know who the monster is and he's just kept in his cage and then wandered around a bit um and and thrown you know thrown innocent beings to um to destroy every once in a while and like all really excellent monster films we never actually see him <laughs> mm -hmm. we only see kind of his effects and there is um an absolutely incredible scene so matthew mcfadden old, old tom from succession is the head of hr and mm -hmm. you realize it's so acute that it's not just you know there's there's <laughs> the monster but also the the enablers and they're just as bad if not somehow worse in a way because you know they're doing it solely to keep their own power but also don't seem to be that fussed by it um, mm. but it's absolutely it is gripping, it is chilling it is like minimal and just so like it, like it's haunting I cannot recommend it enough really want to see that movie I didn't realise until uh, yesterday when I was reading up on you know sort of some of the best movies of the year to see which ones I should see that uh, Kitty Green also directed uh, a documentary from a couple of years ago called Casting Jean Benet yes which is on uh, is on Netflix and is very worth watching if anyone hasn't seen it if they want to see kind of a meta deconstructive kind of documentary that's about the Jean Benet Ramsey kind of like disappearance and killing but not you know directly about it there's more about you know the culture that grows up around it so uh, she seems to be an incredibly interesting filmmaker i'm really excited to see uh, what else she goes on to do my kind of like first uh film that uh you know that, that in fact i think was this was my the first like film of 2020 that i watched in terms of like a movie release this year and also pretty sure it was the last movie i actually saw in a theater <laughs> um so it's got a lot of it's got a lot of weight with me based just on that really but I it was a movie that was uh, my number one of the year for quite uh, some time and which I still really really like was Lee Wanell's uh, The Invisible Man starring mm. uh, Elizabeth Moss a really great updating of that VHVG Wells story that you know kind of moves the focus a little bit away from the man, the invisible man, uh, towards uh, his victim, in this case played by Elizabeth Moss, who is the girlfriend of an abusive partner who's this kind of like tech billionaire. She escapes from him. He turns up dead a few days later, or seemingly turns up dead, and then she starts experiencing a kind of haunting. And, you know, the way in which uh, Winnell updates the nature of that, you know, kind of taking it away from 
the kind of like scientific the, the 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 science fiction premise of the novel and previous adaptations of a potion to make it more about a suit that allows the the main villain to kind of go around invisible invisibly is really well done i think the effects for it which are you know fairly minimal because all you really need to do is to have a guy in a suit that you then kind of green screen out of it are really well done there's a couple of really great fight scenes in the movie between elizabeth moss and kind of an unseen attacker that are really really effective and much like Winnell's uh, previous film upgrade there's just a tremendous sense of fun to the whole thing you know even though it is very much very intense and if for anyone who uh, like me has a real horrible fear of being uh institutionalized uh incorrectly you know of, of being told being put in an institution where everyone thinks that you're you know insane when you're not uh it, it's you know it's a very intense watch it is also just like hugely pleasurable in the way in which Wanell, who i think is someone who's such a got such a great understanding of genre tropes and you know subverts them in places but mainly he just knows how to implement them in the like the absolute perfect way and uh, i think between this and upgrade he's really shaping up to be a great genre filmmaker and i hope that uh bloomhouse's subsequent work with the universal monsters which i think this was their kind of like their first foray into um because the dark universe imploded so terribly the universe just basically said hey why don't you just take these properties and make a load of low budget versions of it that will make us a ton of money I hope the rest of them work as well as this one because I really do feel like this is real kind of like exemplar way of say of taking a story that's been told so many times and doing it in a way that feels really exciting and fresh and fun mm, mm. and it goes without saying Elizabeth Moss is, is, is fantastic in the lead on a Matthew McFadden sort of theme, I realised one of uh, one of the first shows that was getting a lot of, of buzz, and I think it was around the time I think it was bef- before lockdown, mm. but just as things were really starting to kind of hit the UK shores in particular, James Graham's Quiz, mm. which is a drama based on the coughing scandal. Uh, who wants mm-hmm. to be a millionaire? And I remember things about it at the time and I listened to an episode of Swindled about it recently so it was sort of like on my mind and then when the photos came out mainly as sort of a chance to wheel out Michael Sheen being a really eerie impersonator again. Yeah. Um, but when the pictures of him as Chris Tarrant came out I was just like, oh God, I have to see this. And it is a really cracking, like... I think there's something about getting playwrights to write telly in particular mm-hmm. and the attention to sort of language and I'm not I'm here or there with James Graham but this is really good Matthew McFadden is incredible the whole cast really are amazing and it shows you know it's a lot about obviously sort of pursuit of money but generally just like communication and meaning and, and things slipping and what I didn't realise is that ITV bosses had a meeting with the producers about the possible the possibility that they'd been um, uh, they'd been scammed and uh, 9/11 happened during that meeting. Oh wow! Which is again something quite in terms of a sort of sense of like loss of innocence or I don't know, but yeah. But Matthew McFadden in particular is he's just between that succession and the assistant, he's kind of fast becoming like one of my 
favourite, favourite actors. <laughs> and again, I think he's someone that, even though he, it's not like he struggled to find roles in, in the UK, he does just seem to be, on the whole, treated a bit more seriously in American fare. Mm, even if he's playing someone who is, like Tom in Succession, such a gormless kind well, of... Well, but the, thing, the interesting thing about Tom is that for the majority, like, he's incredibly gormless and there's something very endearing about how much he genuinely loves Shiv. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. There's a bit of power play in it, but, like, he loves her. But yeah. there are moments where he can just turn and he becomes genuinely the most menacing, horrific... Because he's still at the top of many chains. He's just at the, you know, around the bottom of the Roy's um, mm, because yeah. they are the, the super predators. And I think that's it. Like, Tom and Greg have a kind of... I find it really hard not to compare Succession to the thick of it because they're so much the same sort of team and overlap um, and kind of style. But that sort of Greg is almost like the Ollie to Tom's, like almost like Dan Miller like mm. you know appears sort of nicer but it's actually like the one that you really need to look out for yeah I, I was just thinking that because someone reshared the video uh, at the scene from Succession where he has to read the questionnaire so like the TV host who's been accused of being a Nazi oh my um, god and he's he's trying to kind of he's trying to play it off as being like this is just a thing we ask everyone, and you know there's that great bit where he's just kind of like, uh, have you ever read Mein Camp? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, got a couple of times. He's like, and he goes like, a couple, a few Easter eggs that you missed on the first time. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's just such a perfect perfect line delivery of a guy just being try trying very hard to get through the situation where he doesn't have to do anything <laughs> he doesn't have to reprimand this person but clearly having very serious concerns <laughs> about this, this the guy's uh fairly uh, obvious nazi sympathies uh, but yeah it's been really nice to see him as someone who yeah obviously has been working constantly for years and years and years but have seeing him kind of like rise in prominence over the last couple of years and just delivering all these like really great performances has been really nice to see i think uh, my next one, uh, I think I recommended this on the show a few weeks ago, so I won't talk about it too much, but Shirley, the uh, Josephine Decker mm. movie uh, about Shirley Jackson, which is just like a wonderful, intense little character study about these, mostly about you know, these four people, uh, Shirley Jackson and her husband, played by uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, and then a younger comp- uh, couple played by Odessa Young and Logan Lerman kind of like spending this time together in this this house play the the i think the film covers a good couple of months and it's all about their interactions and you know the ways in which shirley's kind of like fascination with this younger woman kind of plays into the story that she's writing and how that also connects to a real life story of a a young woman disappearing near where they live in vermont and you know it's just this really great little chamber piece that uh, I found to be totally arresting wonderfully played by those those four actors and then you know every so often um, they'll venture out into the real world and encounter other people but for the most part it's just those four people in one house just kind of really uh, who's afraid of Virginia wolfing it up uh, and I think it's just another great movie from Josephine Deck who's one of those filmmakers who uh, you know, I haven't seen everything that she's done, but everything I've seen of hers has been really great and really impactful. And I think her style, which is so intense and intimate, is just so perfectly suited to this story that is really kind of like gothic 
in its in its not only its focus because obviously Shirley Jackson was you know a great horror writer, but also just in its tone of these people being trapped in a house together and really kind of like wearing at each other's nerves. Uh, so yes, that's a real highlight for me, and again a real showcase for Elizabeth Moss who. Uh, at this point, it probably doesn't need to be <laughs> stated that she's just great and one of the, the great, the best actors working. But uh, I'll say it again: uh, Elizabeth Moss, fantastic in Shirley, and I really, you know, awards don't mean anything, and you know everything. But I, I, I would really like it if she gets some attention towards the end of the year or the middle of next year, whenever the Oscars end up happening, because mm-hmm. I think that she is such a she's she's not exactly underrated because obviously she's someone who's been. Uh, acclaimed and got so many plaudits for her work in television for years and years but it'd be nice to see that sort of recognition travel over into her film work considering that you know the, the handful of films she's made over the last couple of years have featured absolutely incredible work from her in roles both big and small speaking of kind of, uh, sort of chamber room pieces let's not forget that 2020 is the year that we were blessed with Portrait of a Lady on Fire mm, big props yeah. to Mubi again for bringing that to me just such a lush, epic, funny, wry, like wrenching romance. And not just romance, but like women's relationships in general. It's such a lean and dense film in terms of the relationships between these women. And again, it's really just women. I think there's two guys in the whole thing. <laughs> and which, I'll be honest, it's kind of refreshing. But speaking of uh, women and their relationships, I also finished Mrs. America, which mm. I think is a really stunning miniseries and has just like absolute cream of the crop. It's it's <laughs> binders full of women because <laughs> <laughs> um, they're all just bursting out of the screen. But it is a really... I really enjoyed it and everyone is acting their socks off and Kate Blanchett is just amazing going for a kind of instead of a sort of direct um impersonation of phyllis schlafly the um anti-feminist she she sort of creates this figure but it's the same with all of them like there's a really great kind of resemblance and there's something quite fun and being like wow roseburn really does kind of like glide around with this sensuality like gloria steinem does and you know but and it there's something like wonderful about gloria steinem being like oh you know I should really like focus more on my book, not my activism. I'm turning 40 and uh, I don't have children. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I mean, I know Gloria Steinem's already a hero of mine, but this is just bringing it <laughs> home even harder. My only kind of quibble with it is that one of the most compelling characters is entirely fictional. And I mm. think does run into that risk of <sighs> kind of creating someone who didn't exist and almost has so much political heft that the show's like look she's a good one she saw the light and it's mm. kind of this both sidesism and centrism within sorry um sarah paulson's character alice who is you know plausible to a point but i i don't know i, I love to think that people change and and she has like a really pivotal <laughs> moment at the sort of women's conference um, and you know manages to get very high and see things in a different way and sort of soften her position somewhat but also it's like but if that person doesn't exist 
Mm. And it's this weird kind of not quite revisionist because it is essentially saying what happened. But if you're basically saying we are resting so much of what we think, you know, there's so much of the moral and the message of the story behind her character. Mm. And it feels a bit contrived. I don't know. I was sort of sitting and, and thinking on it because I still think it's an incredible series and I think makes a really good case for the irony and the cruel trick of sort of patriarchy and that Phyllis Schlafly was like incredibly powerful and was suppressed because of patriarchy Um, Mm. and was actually instrumental to getting Reagan elected Um, and this really fascinating like looking within powerful women who don't believe in feminism is fascinating yeah uh, it's also great to see um, Uzo Aduba as Shirley Chisholm, like, and, and just and just kind of, it made me think about the movement, Ed, and where we are now, and it made me feel like incredibly grateful for the work that's been done before me for me to to have the life that I'm living, my kind of trying to be like Gloria Steinem life, <laughs> but how much further we have to go, and the fact that the ERA still isn't actually ratified, like, and and through is fucking boggling but it's it's so well made like it's not perfect but it really cares about every single one of them and oh my god Tracy Ullman is as Betty Friedan fucking hell just something else yeah in terms of you know what we were talking earlier about like new streaming services I do feel like the it's obviously not a new streaming service but you know the the way that Hulu have really kind of like ramped up their originals because you know of Disney buying Fox and FX being part of Fox and Hulu being now owned by Disney so a lot of FX stuff that would have aired on FX now goes straight to Hulu it's very complicated <laughs> this, 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 this streaming world but it does really feel as if they're putting a lot of oomph into those shows you know like obviously that uh, aired on their devs I think was the other like really big one that was I think slated to at some point air on FX and instead aired on uh, Hulu on FX and I think it's it's been really interesting seeing shows of that kind of caliber show up there and you know maybe suggest that Disney are really interested in uh, amplifying the streaming war against Netflix because obviously they can squeeze them on the family stuff with uh, Disney Plus and then you know put all their non especially family friendly stuff onto Hulu and just kind of like try and do a pincer movement on them. It's quite interesting it's a quite interesting uh, dynamic they've got there. And at, at least for the moment while they're still inheriting um shows that were commissioned prior to the merger uh, that they do seem to be committing to shows that are kind of like intellectually and dramatically interesting and they're not kind of going for bland middle middle of the road stuff. And speaking of FX as well, uh, one of my highlights of the year was the second season of What We Do in the Shadows, which uh, I thought was just the show firing on all cylinders. That you know, the first season was really great, took the premise of the movie and the style, and just you know, moved it to a new location. But pretty much just you know, very very quickly became its own thing and made the great use of its uh, of its cast to kind of become its own beast. I think the second season because they started to introduce more fantastical beings. I think in the first season, it was pretty much just, obviously, the the vampires and the werewolves that you saw in the first se- in the movie. 
Uh, but in the second season, they introduce witches. They have trolls. They have uh, uh, they have um, necromancers uh, played by Benedict Wong in a lovely little performance. Um, they have rivalries between vampires that have spent years and years like uh, chasing down members, as in the uh, best episode of television I saw this year, where. Uh, the Matt Berry character goes on the run and decides to create a new life for himself as a bartender, bartender called Jackie Daytona, and also has like this wonderful subplot running through it all, where the character of uh, Guillermo, who's their kind of like helper, discovers that he's a descendant of Van Helsing and just has an amazing ability at killing vampires, and spends so much of the season, you know, in some cases accidentally <laughs> killing vampires, but in other cases. Um, trying to protect his masters from these kind of like vengeful clans that are after them and it's just a show that I feel like has really come into its own, it's so funny the effects are really well done in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have to be, you know, for, for a comedy show like that's not a given, but I think the fact they put so much effort into that really speaks well of the people who make the show, that they want it to look as good as possible and they're constructing their own fun little world now and I'm really excited to see what happens with the third season whenever it's safe for them to film it. I'm just going to say one line about I May Destroy You because if I carry on then it will just take hours but yeah, (laughs) I think it is definitely, I don't think it's going to be topped this year or any Mm. year. It is one of the most remarkable pieces of television or just in general like culture Like, and I'm not one to be cog in the hype machine but this isn't hype this is pure <laughs> um mm-hmm. pure art pure genius and also what i quite find quite satisfying about it actually which you were sort of saying there Ed, in terms of like filming next series and things what i really appreciate is that and i hope that there won't be but it's not a series where it's like oh and we're gonna make a, a sequel <laughs> like it is mm. contained and like devastating and funny and just utterly utterly incredible my next one and again i talked about this a few weeks ago when it debuted on netflix but uh spike lee's to five bloods i think is really uh, terrific stuff i think it's uh, a really great vision of vietnam that is distinct from what we've seen uh previously you know obviously it's informed by you know some of the the iconic works about Vietnam but obviously you know through a different filter because it's very specifically about the experiences of black soldiers in Vietnam during the war and the tension between you know going and fighting for your country whilst knowing that the country largely hates you (laughs) that you're fighting on behalf of largely hates you um and you know does everything it can to restrict your rights and I think obviously um it's only become more timely i guess in in that respects in the lights of in the the way that it very explicitly kind of connects the civil rights movement and what was going on in kind of black culture at the time of the vietnam war with you know what was happening in the war itself um when you consider the black lives matter movements and things that the fact that so many of those conflicts are still being fought now and so many of those conversations are still being had uh, the cast is great. Visually, it's you know one of uh, Spike Lee's most distinctive movies, and uh, there are just so many like wonderful moments. Really, I think the one that really stands out to me is a montage set to the 
vocal only performance of what's going on that always tends to do the uh, the rounds online when people find that isolated vocal track but Spike Lee uses it to absolutely uh, beautiful effect and I think uh, it, it's just a, a really wonderful movie and I'm really glad that Spike Lee has reached a point in his career where he can make movies on that sort of scale again because for a, for a few years there it seemed like he was you know when he was like having to crowdfund movies or make movies on a really smaller scale and budget that you know he wouldn't be in a position to make a movie on this sort of size uh, again Netflix is obviously a, a, a very mixed blessing in a lot of ways but I, I, I am kind of grateful when they occasionally turn around and say oh yeah one of our great modern auteurs yeah here's a bunch of money to go and do something yeah. it's quite nice I know what you mean because three on my list here are I believe Netflix originals Taylor Swift Miss Americana the half of it mm. and Desperados mm. wildly varying um, quality and styles and I think that's it like I think we have to sort of start seeing Netflix less like a the monolith that it is and that there is actually an umbrella for a lot of good work to happen even if I'm not like mm. keen on a lot of its processes um, yeah. but similar to the BBC I mean just talking the TV arm of the BBC and the film you know BBC films a bit less the kind of you know because Netflix is not a broadcaster I still believe in the TV license thank you very much but that they like because you can't actually put a finger on what a Netflix original is Mm, (laughs) because there are so many and unfortunately maybe too many but things like I think Taylor Swift Miss Americana is an interesting one because even though you know mainly thanks to pop star never stop never stopping which as we all know is one of the greatest films of all time um mm. the the kind of pop doc had sort of fallen out of popularity but i found it pretty compelling and yeah maybe it's hagiography and it does show her in a very positive light but it was still quite revealing and interesting and particularly it's basically like it's it's taylor swift's going electric moment but with politics mm, <laughs> so yeah. to see that happen and her like fighting for herself and arguing with like her management I think is pretty powerful and that it's on Netflix and that girls don't have to necessarily like go to the cinema you know before lockdown even in quarantine like having to ask permission to go to the cinema they can literally just fire off on Netflix and be like oh my god maybe women's rights are good if Taylor Swift says so so I, I will like and again, kind of looping back on Mrs. America, it's it's interesting to see like, oh, you're you're kind of you know you, you think your heroes are incredible. Turns out da, 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 we're all just human. But that is something that I'll always commend Taylor Swift for, and to be in on that process of her not I'm not going to say radicalized, but at least like heading towards the right. <laughs> and also the the stigma that she gets in terms of like like past interviews when she's like in her early twenties and being like, hey, I'm just the you all just want to hear me shut up and sing, right? And everyone's like, yeah. And you're like, God, this is awful. <laughs> like, this sort of <laughs> talk show racket. The half of it, which uh, I had on my list, but you sort of recommended to me, Ed, and I agree, mm. is like absolutely lovely, queer, modern retelling of Serrano de Bergerac. But it's so much more than that. I was really bowled over by how genuinely heartfelt and very fucking funny it is. Yeah. Um, and one that, like, is is sort of open to the family like it it's still it's a top sort of coming of age it's in the new it's in the new canon great ending as well oh yes could not agree more 
just one word to you, Ed, emojis. I was just like, I was falling about. And then uh, finally, um, kind of on a sort of money plane vibe, um, but Desperados, which is a Netflix original. And if you ever wondered, what if Ali and Winston from New Girl had their own film? Uh, <laughs> and yes, that would be a good idea. But it's so frustrating because there are really tantalising bits of the writing that are interesting. And yet it just kind of tries to be so many different things at once, including sort of like the hangover for girls. But then it drops people. Everyone is acting their socks off. Nassim Padrad is, uh, deserves so much more. She manages to make everything a lot more charming than it should be. Um, and uh, I, I'm, still, I'm still kind of like processing what I saw in terms of something to do with a dolphin um, I'm not going to go into any more of it and it just looked like as beautiful as the cinematography of the half of it is it's almost like they got all the budget and Desperados mm-hmm. were given like $7 it looks really oh I don't oh it almost looks like the room at points <laughs> really but it's such an interesting frustrating watch I wasn't bored <laughs> <laughs> and Heather Graham's in it for like five seconds, much like she is in Twins. Um, <laughs> so there you go. That's sort of come full circle for me a bit, Ed. Uh, you just mentioning Nassim Padrad just reminded me that she is the name. If I try and think of what is a name that I instantly associate with Don Pardo's voice, it's always <laughs> Nassim Padrad. <laughs> for some reason, like that's always the example I go to in terms. I'm sure everyone has that. Like, what is the SNL like? cast members voice that they most associate with that voice yeah but, uh, yeah it's Nassim Padrad for me um, but yeah she was yeah she definitely deserves better <laughs> she was fantastic on SNL next for me is uh, a movie that I can't really talk too much about because of its premise but uh, Palm Springs uh, ah the Kristen Malotti and Andy Samberg rom-com that debuted on uh, Hulu a couple of weeks ago at this point, yes, and I just think it's very funny it's very funny, it's very clever yeah, they're both very good in it and very uh, charming even though they are not particularly likeable for a large part of it but um, the reasons they're not particularly likeable are very understandable given the story <laughs> trying to do gymnastics around it uh, about what the movie's actually about but um they're both great in it. J.K. Simmons is fantastic in a supporting role. And I just think it's very inventive, very smart. You know, I think it's got a great uh, soundtrack, including um, a, a, I would say, mostly earned use of Cloud Busting by Kate Bush uh, at a crucial moment. And, yeah, I was just really, really impressed by how, how good it is. It, it's a movie that uh, I think largely avoids the kind of like Sundance hype that was around it because it was a big big deal at Sundance I think it was bought for like 17 million or something which I, I think may be the record for however much a movie sold for at Sundance or it's certainly quite high up there oh. and I think it's it largely lives up to the hype it largely avoids the curse of most Sundance movies where you know they get all this hype up and they come out and everyone says oh I guess everyone was just really happy to be indoors when they raved about this movie but uh, I, I think it, I, I genuinely think it's it's very very good, and totally worth seeing with as little foreknowledge as possible if you can. Because I think even though the premise becomes apparent very early on, it's still quite fun. Kind of like seeing that moment of surprise when it 
we realise what the movie's about. Uh, so yeah, so Palm Springs uh, was definitely one that uh, was a real nice, pleasant surprise for me. Oh, Hulu, let me watch it, Hulu. Why won't you let me? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it'll sh- show up on the in the U- UK somewhere. Yeah, better. Uh, and I just have two more that I'll just quickly uh, run through. One of the absolute highlights of the year for me was a kind of like multi-part documentary series about a much kind of like storied 90s American uh, sports team. Uh, Of course, I'm talking of The History of the Seattle Mariners by John Boyce and uh, Alex Rubenstein of uh, SB Nation's Dorktown series, which aired over the course of, I think, seven or eight episodes uh, on YouTube and was an absolute joy from start to finish. Uh, I really love John Boyce's work and particularly the work he does with Alex Rubenstein uh, for Dorktown. I love his the way in which he makes graphs and data feel like alive and how he can make them funny and moving and his clear love of the Seattle Mariners, a team that have had a decidedly checkered history, have largely been terrible, <laughs> but for a brief time in the 90s were genuinely good, but even when they weren't good, they were still fascinating and they still had great players and they still had great stories, and that's the thing that I really love about... Uh, I've always loved about John Boyce's work separately as well, is just how interested he is in finding the weird stories in sports. Mm. And, yeah, what what they do over the course of that series is really, really uh, beautiful stuff. And uh, I highly recommend it. And uh, finally, my favourite film of the year to date, which I just watched uh, yesterday and I'd been looking forward to for ages and finally saw and was completely won over by, even given my high expectations, was Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, which is wonderful. Anyone who's familiar with Kelly Reichardt's work will probably have a decent sense of what it is. You know, it's this very lo-fi story not where not a huge amount happens but what does happen is like hugely impactful and wonderfully played it follows uh two characters played by uh john magano and orion lee uh two men who are kind of in the um oregon i guess oregon territory at that point who are in the 18 i think it's like 1860s who kind of stumble across this small settlement where um they are trying to eke out kind of a meagre existence and they discover that uh, the first milking cow in the territory is being brought to this settlement and so they sort of start clandestinely milking it at night and then using the milk to create sweet treats to sell to people in the town and it's all about their kind of keeping up this subterfuge even though they quickly enter into a friendship with the owner of the cow paid wonderfully by uh, Toby Jones Nice. who is just absolutely delightful in it uh, uh, just particularly because the first time they meet him is because they give him some kind of like cake or something and he's just completely delighted by it and he uh, just really seems to enjoy he really enjoys saying the word uh, clafoutis uh, <laughs> over and over again and uh, it's really wonderful it's really sweet it's incredibly warm and heartwarming and I think while I I'm not sure if Kelly Reichardt will ever make a movie that kind of touches me as much as uh, Wendy and Lucy did, which no is still way. my favourite of hers. 
Uh, this really does get close and is absolutely wonderful and uh, it was great to finally get to see it considering that its cinema release was cancelled as a result of the pandemic and there was a lot of uncertainty about when it would ever actually appear so to actually be able to watch it digitally was a, a real joy so yeah so first cow my favorite film of, of the year so far and a real real strong contender i think uh at the end of the year when we start to look back over the whole year i think if there are if there are 10 films better than first cow this year then it will have been quite a year for movies um but also if there are 10 films released this year <laughs> it'll be <laughs> it'll be quite a turnaround <laughs> Uh, we will skip recommendations this week because really this whole episode was <laughs> recommending stuff. Check it, check any of that stuff out. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. So we'll uh, say goodbye right now. So if you enjoy this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.